Let us read together Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there were, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on a better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and shall not teach uh, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete? and growing old is ready to vanish away. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, as we approach this text, I want to ask you a question. Is a shadow better than reality? Obvious answer, no. There's an old allegory given by a ancient philosopher named Plato where he talks about how we all are people who stand in a cave and we are chained to the floor of this cave and there is a light coming from behind us that casts shadows on the wall and all we see are these monstrous shadows moving back and forth 
that the reality is behind us and distant, and it is casting light, it is casting shadow onto the wall, and that's what we get to see. Plato had no idea how right he was. And poor philosopher Plato also had no idea what salvation he was missing. As indeed, when we met Christ, we came out of the cave and our shackles were unbound from the dirt and we were given freedom to know and see the substance that casts the shadow. This is the state of man. They know where they are. Don't be deceived by their pride or their voices. They can rant about philosophy all day long and they can proclaim that they are self-actualized all day long. They can write books after book after book about finding themselves and in reality, they know nothing of the substance. All they have is the shadow. This ought to evoke pity in us immediately. Pity for those who are around us and for those neighbors. Indeed, as we read in Jeremiah, God's desire is that they would know Him. Piper puts it this way. He says, Christianity is a come-see religion. I mean, I'm sorry. Christianity is a go-and-tell religion. Judaism was a come-and-see religion. The religions of the world are come-and-see. Christianity is a go-and-tell. You see. Go tell those who are enslaved. Go tell them. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. There is much to cover in this passage. But we want to start by recognizing verse 5. They serve the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the the priests, the sacrificial systems, the temple, the tabernacle, the law of Moses, Moses himself, serve as a shadow of the substance. They serve as a shadow of the heavenly things. They are not reality. They are the shadow. So when we read them, that's why when we read things about Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock, we can immediately go, rock, Jesus is referred to as the rock of our salvation over and over and over in Scripture, this must have some picture of how we get to see God. Oh, we get to see God when we are bound in the rock of Christ. When He covers our sins, when He covers over us, and then we get to know and see the Lord, the Lord gracious and merciful. We get to see Him. By the way, that's Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. The um, picture here of shadow versus substance is profound because we no longer have to stare at the shadow. We have been introduced to the substance. Indeed, that is John's argument in John chapter 1, particularly verse 14. He became flesh and tabernacled among us and dwelt among us. He made his tent here on earth with us. He walked among us, flesh and blood, He's here and present. You can know the sovereign God of the universe because Jesus Christ has come. How beautiful, how powerful, and how wonderful that is. So understand at the outset 
If you have trusted in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord, you have been redeemed by Him. He has done a work in your heart. If this is true of you, you get the real thing. You get the real thing. You're not, you're not getting a substitute. You're not getting a shadow. You get the real thing. You're not staring at a wall anymore. You're not chained to the dirt. You get a real, you get the real thing. You get life and life abundant. I think I could, I could rant about getting the real thing all day because of how magnificent that is. You get the substance. Now jump back up to chapter 8, verse 1, and let's dive into this passage fully. Now, the point in what we are saying, remember, he's been talking about Jesus, the greater high priest, Jesus from the order of Melchizedek, Jesus who's not bound to the law, Jesus who is above the law, Jesus who is uh, not, not a Levite, but from the line of Judah, by which there's, remember, by which there's no law governing a priest from the line of Judah, he is king and priest. He is from the line of Melchizedek, the righteous king of Salem, or the righteous king of, pre, of, of peace. That's what that means, Melchizedek of Salem, the righteous king of peace. And he uh, is the high priest to the God most high, El Elyon, also God of the upper room. There's your review for the last four chapters. So, he, uh, we have such a high priest. This is the point we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, or we have this kind of high priest. One, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. First, we have this kind of high priest. He is a king. He is monarchical. He is, he is Lord. So let's get that in our heads first. Let's get that in our heads first. Christianity is not a democracy in which you vote on Jesus. You don't get to decide. You don't have a voice. Christianity is a monarchy in which he is sovereign king over everything. Indeed, just to be clear, everything's a monarchy and he's king over everything. But when you are a servant of Christ, when you have become a believer... He is your king, you are his servant, and you follow him. There's not a debate. You don't get to vote. You don't, you don't get to, to, I mean, you can plead your case, which is what we do every Sunday when we lay our prayers at his feet. But we lay our prayers at his feet because we know he is king and he will do what he wants. That great old saying, he is not tamed. He is good, but he is not tame. So we lay our prayers and our petitions at his feet, knowing that we have this kind of high priest, that he is king and he's seated. Did you notice he's seated? He's not standing. This is the position of someone who has claimed victory. A victor sits down because he's won. He doesn't need to stand in battle. He's won. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. A beautiful, poetic uh, name for the kingdom and God. The majesty of heaven. Almost as if you 
stand in the throne room and you can see Jesus sitting on his chair, but everything to his right is so powerful and majestic that you you can't look at it. You just you kind of you get this image of Jesus and then to his right you're going that's the majesty of heaven. I can see Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. He has won and he rules. Not only do we need to understand that he's monarchical and that he's he's on a throne and he's 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 next to we need to understand he's next to the majesty of heaven and that he's holding an intercessor's position. He stands there. You can see him. You can know him. He's the substance that the Old Testament was screaming about. The Old Testament was yelling about. He's the substance of it. And you can see him. And he, he is interceding on your behalf. He's seated at the right hand of heaven, a position of intercession, standing on, sitting and talking on your behalf to the King of Kings, God Almighty, glory forever. So, first, we have this kind of high priest. One, seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Second, a minister in the holy places. We have this kind of high priest that he ministers in the holy places. This is the idea that he is, uh, the word minister here is the, the idea of public servant who administers holy writs. So a priest who's a public servant, who's a servant to all who would come, John chapter 6, all who come to me I will not cast out, and those who I draw come. Um, all who the Father gives me will come to me, and all who come to me I will not pass out. That's what it says. John six thirty six. So Jesus is the public servant to that, in that he administers holiness to, to that. So this is who he is. So first, he's the monarchical king who's seated at the right hand of God. Second, he's a minister, a servant in the holy places where people are not allowed to enter. Listen, who in this room is without Christ? Let's be clear, because I know you guys are sharp. Without Jesus would be able to enter the holy places. You can't. You're unable to. But with Jesus, you are able to enter into the holy of holies, and hear the Lord proclaim, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. So we have this image of Jesus going into the holy places on our behalf and ministering to us. That's the second thing. Third thing, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This is the true tent, or the true tabernacle. Again, throwing us back to the Old Testament. This is a tent of meeting where you meet with God. This is the tent that was set up. Jesus. He's ministering in the holy places 
and providing you a place of meeting with God that He set up. You didn't do it. You can't do it. Man didn't do it. The law didn't do it. Our obedience didn't do it. It couldn't. We're not able to. If you wanted to argue that we were able to, you could simply read Scripture and see we're not willing to. If you're not willing to, then you're not able to. If you won't. Bible, by the way, it doesn't deal in hypotheticals. It deals in reality. If you're a philosopher, theologizer, and you want to argue hypotheticals, good luck arguing with Scripture, because it's always going to come back to reality over and over and over again. So, here we have this beautiful picture of He is the true tent that is set up by God and not man. This is the same emphasis that He's been doing this whole time, where He says, man is temporal and ends, and this does not. This is eternal and heavenly. Man is temporal earthly and bound down here to the law, and he over here, Jesus, is heavenly, eternal, and above the law. He wrote the law. He made the law. It's his. The law doesn't own him. He owns it. He is God over that. So, listen, if you do not know Christ, this statement of him being the high priest does not cover you. Indeed, for that person, he is judge. He is judge. And that person should be afraid. Should be afraid. But, if you know Christ, this is for you. He's ministering for all who believe, for those who are His. He is ministering in the holy places in the tent that is set up for those who believe. Jesus is eternal. This tent that He builds, that God builds, is eternal. It is not temporary. And then the author of Hebrews here says in verse 3, 4, Anytime there's a for, you need to recognize he's expounding on the argument. So he says, uh, here's the argument. Jesus, we have this kind of high priest. He's a monarch who sits at the right hand of heaven. He is, um, he is minister in the holy places. And he has established a true tent, not the shadow, but the true tent that the Lord set up and not the law, not our works, and not man doesn't matter how great an organization a person can set up. He cannot bring salvation or connection to God through his organizational skill. That's impossible. So, Jesus sets these things up. And then in verse 3, it says, For every high priest appointed to offer, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So, these priests would offer sacrifices for themselves and then they'd offer sacrifices for the people. What was great about Jesus, and what we read in the last chapter, is he didn't need to sacrifice for himself because he's perfect. Sinless, perfect lamb. And then, what did he bring to sacrifice? He brought himself to sacrifice on your behalf. He is the better sacrifice. Because he is eternal, now bear with me, we're going to talk a little bit about timeline, eternity, jumping in and out of eternity. So, imagine a timeline encapsulated in a circle. 
time. Jesus, uh, well, let's back up. Man sins against God, back here at the very beginning, sins against God, and that is a sin done to an eternal being who is outside of time, within time. But because it's done to an eternal being, it has eternal ramifications. Sin is done against God in time. It has eternal ramifications. So there's an option. Either God can take what is temporal, us, our temporal beings, and move us to eternity to experience punishment. He can take us, they're temporal, put us in eternal punishment to answer the ramifications of sin done on an eternal being. Or, he can take himself and put himself into time and receive eternal wrath on our behalf at a moment in time to cover our sins and give us rescue. Jesus Christ is an eternal being who becomes man. Takes the wrath of God upon himself at a designated point in time and then grants you salvation eternal. This, if he were on... if. So every high priest brings something. Jesus brought himself. Now, verse 4, Now, if he were on earth, if he were on earth, remember, if he were shackled to the ground and he were under the law, which we know he's not. He's not shackled to the ground and he's not under the law. So we know now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So if Jesus were on earth, and he were, he's of the tribe of Judah, he wouldn't, this is just a logical statement. He's, it's not, don't overthink it. He's saying exactly what he said in the previous chapter. He's from the line of Judah. He's not from the Levites. This is a different kind of priest. This is a heavenly priest, the priest of God most high. This is not a Levitical priesthood. He is not bound under the law. He is over the law, above the law. He is king, not only king, but priest, and what we saw at the very beginning, also prophet. He is prophet, priest, and king. Jesus covers all three offices and is greater than all three offices on earth. If he was of earth, he'd be bound to the law. He wouldn't be a priest at all, but he's not. He's heavenly, so he's separate from us. The author of Hebrews here is emphasizing the separateness of Jesus. He says, since they are priests who offer uh, gifts according to the law. So he wouldn't be a priest because they offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, so here's the next four, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better 
since it is enacted on a on better promises. So Jesus, not earthly, he's higher first. Second, he's the substance, not a shadow. He's not the shadow. The law is a shadow of the substance. Galatians 3.24, the law exists for one purpose, and that's to lead us to Christ. The law is a schoolmaster to lead us and teach us of Christ. That's what the law is for. It's there to point you to Jesus. So, when you read that Old Testament, the first, four, the first five books of the Bible, when you read those first five books, you ought to be looking for how they point you to Jesus. Paul says in the New Testament that that's okay. That's how you're supposed to read it. You're supposed to read it with Jesus' lenses on. So they are a shadow. He is the substance. And in verse 6, we see Jesus makes a better covenant. You ever wonder why the law was so incredibly specific in the Old Testament? I mean, it's ridiculous. You have to, there's a, a one of my favorite passages, is a passage where you get two doves. Two doves, and you come to make an atoning sacrifice for sins, and you come with these two doves, and they cut and bl- drain the blood of one, and then they tie a scarlet yarn around the ankle of the other one and let it free. And the first one dies, and the new one rises to flight and flies off with this scarlet thread around his ankle. And how beautiful is that when you consider what Jesus has done in killing the old man and sin, and that his death on the cross, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6, we die with him. We were buried with him, but we were raised to walk a new life by the blood of Jesus tied upon us. So we die like these turtle doves in Jesus' death, and we are raised to walk a new life. I love that picture. It's Leviticus, I think it's chapter 8 or 14, or one of the two. But it's, it's beautiful, and it's incredibly precise and incredibly specific. And that's because God wanted so much for you to see Jesus that he made the shadow as precise as he could. Shadow is precise so that you would see the form of Jesus, so that you would be freed from sin, turn around, and see the substance. How beautiful God is and how wonderful He is that He has pursued us with such a relentless and constant love. So He continues here and says in verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need or no occasion to look for a second. For the, so in verse 7 here, he, he talks about the old covenant and says, this old covenant had a fault. The old covenant had a fault. Now, if you're clever, you read ahead one verse and realized where the fault lies. But let's deal with that statement first. There's an old covenant, and that old covenant was the law, and you tried to obey the law, and basically it worked out like this. This is a a gross oversimplification, so just bear with me. You would come, uh, you would be born into a family that had a position in, hopefully, in Israel. If you were a Gentile, there were ways for you to get into the kingdom. They were difficult. 
You had to then submit yourselves to the priest and the law and the structure of the nation of Israel, even if you were a Gentile. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to join, let's say you joined as a slave, you had your ear pierced in the door hole and you said, I don't want to leave. I want to be a part of this family. I want to be a part of Israel. You had, you literally had your ear pierced in the door panel where the blood was put over on Passover. So you had your flesh pierced on the wood, the door. What does Jesus say? I am the door. Every reference he makes, he's always pointing us back so that you would see the shadow and go, Jesus is real, and you turn around and see the substance. Shadow exists, points you to the substance. So, anyway, all this to say, you had to go before the priest, you had to live perfect life, you had to obey all these laws, you had to sacrifice constantly, bringing more and more and more. Each year, there was a day of atonement in which you could wipe out everything for the year. Guess what happened right after you did that? You probably failed at some other aspect of the law, and suddenly had to wait another year for the Day of Atonement, or, if you were clever, figured out how you could bring a sacrifice every morning, which people did. That you would bring some sort of sacrifice every morning to the temple and lay it out, and the priests would then take care of it, and they'd, you'd be holy again for a few moments, if that. And you'd have to do it over and over again. And we saw there was this perpetual cycle, even among the priests. The priests themselves had to do it. They had this perpetual cycle of sacrifice, burn offerings, come back the next day. Okay, we're doing it again. And Jesus comes and tears the veil and says, I am the sacrifice once and for all. It is done. The old covenant was flawed. So we have two options here. We can say the Old Covenant itself was flawed, or we can say something else is going on here. I think we get our answer in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, For he finds fault with them. You see, the problem is not the law. The law is not the problem. Indeed, in Deuteronomy, he says to the people, Do not say we cannot do this. He says, do not say who will go up to the Lord and bring him down, or who will, who will come down to us to bring us up to the Lord. Indeed, I have come to you, and the law is not far from you. God looks at the people of Israel and goes, you can do this. This is not impossible. The problem is not with the written law. The problem is with us. He finds fault with them. God finds fault with them. The problem's not in the law. The law is not sinful. The law is not broken. The law is perfect. Jesus himself says the law is perfect. Yet, he finds fault with them. So what's the answer? Well, Jeremiah gives it to us beautifully here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So there's the problem. They didn't continue. I 
this covenant's not going to be like that one. I, so I showed no concern for them. In other words, they aren't his. He drops it. He says, I'm, I'm no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, just measure that for a second. God said he showed no concern for them here in Jeremiah. However, I don't know if you read the Old Testament. That's a whole lot of concern and care. This is an incredibly patient God. By the time he says, I showed no concern for them, it has been a long time of concern. By the time Israel gets put into exile, it has been a long walk of care and compassion and concern. By the time he says this in Jeremiah, it is worthy for him to say, you will now go into exile you will now be brought. I will keep a remnant. The rest of you will be gone. It is good. So now he says here in verse 10, this is the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. God says here, this is the covenant. This is the new covenant. In Jesus. The, the old covenant was a shadow of this. He says, just look at it. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. Indeed, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. For what the law could not do by the flesh, Christ did by the Spirit. I am rescued and redeemed by His blood and His life. He has changed my heart. The old has gone. The new has come. The old has been crucified with Christ. Those who have believed on Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Indeed, we see throughout the New Testament this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ having rescued and redeemed and changed my heart to conform me to his image. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. What does the Apostle John say in 1 John? You have a teacher in the Holy Spirit who teaches you. You can open the word of God. Indeed, this teaching here is now worship. Because we have been We've rested from our labor in Jesus Christ and we've been redeemed and we enjoy permanent Sabbath rest in Him. Finally, here in verse 12, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Oh, that we would all know with such confidence the joy and love of Christ. 
He is merciful towards our iniquities. There's not a hierarchy anymore. It's the least to the greatest. Everyone gets to know Him. There's not a hierarchy. You don't get to earn it. Your education doesn't supersede somebody's lack of education. You are now on level ground. There is indeed no more hierarchy. There is only the king who's given us life. The emphasis of Jeremiah there is that God does what we will not and cannot. He changes our hearts. He changes our minds. He conforms us to his image. He makes us new so that they will all know him. Then in conclusion, the author of Hebrews here in verse 13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. As you get closer, this is beautiful, as you get closer to a shadow, as you get closer to the foot of a shadow, the shadow begins to diminish in size. Shadow begins to diminish in size. I, I want you to just imagine you're facing a wall, and there's a big, scary shadow on the wall, and there's somebody coming from behind you, and they're walking towards you. The closer that that person gets, the smaller the shadow becomes. The shadow becomes less and less and less until that person reaches you, and you turn and see who it was. I can remember when I was little being terrified of shadows on my bedroom wall. I even, I even would pray, you know, I would pray ridiculous prayers. Like, Lord, put the Rambo angel at the foot of that bed and the Bruce Lee angel at the foot of this bed. I didn't know. I, I don't know. I was six. I don't And I'd be in bed and I'd be terrified of these shadows that were on the wall. And I can remember... As the sun came up in the morning, or as the lights were turned on, and I saw what the shadows were, there was no more fear. There was only joy in recognition of where I was. So as Christians, we're in the same place. We've seen the shadow, and it was terrifying. We saw it and we said, Lord, I'm unworthy. I can't save myself. I am sinful man beyond all measure. We saw that shadow. And then, as Jesus pro progressed in our lives and moved closer and closer to us, the shadow got smaller and smaller and smaller until we saw the substance. And we recognized who he was. And sometimes we still see shadows. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes we still look at the Old Testament, we still see shadow, we still look at things that we're struggling with, and we recognize our unworthiness, and we see our sin. In those moments, it's, those are the moments we need to turn and see the light, and see the substance, and be reminded of the glory of Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews is trying to do that for you, that you would see, as you get closer and closer to Christ, the shadows diminish and become less and less, and Christ becomes more and more. 
Oh, that we would all embrace seeing Christ in fullness, that we enter the tent that he has made and delight in his ministry to us there.